Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight, I'm joined by our elite regular panelist, Bruce Garrick, and quarter to three's Tom Chick. Bruce and Tom, welcome back to the show. Hello, gamers. Before we start, I just want to say, if anyone needs a nice, cold glass of cheap vodka, I will go pour that for you right now. Is it coffee-flavored vodka? No, we don't have that. It's just it's vodka. You have to you have to queue up for a long time because there it's in short supply because you know the state supplies are kind of low, um, and it's basically uh, it's government sponsored state vodka. Hmm. Oh man. Yeah. To, yeah. To st- stand in line after uh, waiting for your bread all day. Exactly. Exactly. For the sake of the glorious motherland. And his meat ration. Well, I guess that's what uh, the communist victory in Wargame Airland Battle has brought to us, uh, the glorious benefits of communism. And that's our topic for tonight as we talk about Yugen Systems Wargame Airland Battle, the sequel of sorts to uh, last year's Wargame European Escalation. Tom, I wanted to start with you because you were kind of over the moon about this game in your review on Quarter to Three. Uh, you called it out as just a brilliant game, and at the time I was a little taken aback because I had some issues with uh, some of the changes they made. So I'm Uh-oh. curious Uh-oh. to hear I'm curious to hear uh why you're why you've uh, flipped for this game. First of all, I'm a little I'm I'm not sure how to process this. I've never had to say the name of the developer out loud. Uh and hearing you say it makes me think, wait a minute, that can't be right. It probably is not. Eugen, Eugen, they're French, so I think you want to do some sort of a little glide thing with that G and not quite hit it so hard. Uh, so I'm guessing, I could be wrong, it's something like Eugen, even, maybe. Who knows? Um, but yeah, I've been a big fan of these guys for a long time. Way back before anyone knew who they were, they did a really cool uh, Command and Conquer clone called Act of War. Um, and since then, I feel that they have been, uh, you know, the Ruse game, I think, is what most folks know them for. And since Ruse, in particular, I feel they've really been refining this kind of historical toys take on, uh, on war games. Uh, and, and specifically, what I'm most delighted about with Airland Battle, uh, you know, the, the big selling point, their, their sexy bullet point, is that it adds airplanes, and I do feel those are sexy. But what I'm most pleased with Airland Battle for is how it's one of, I feel, the few real-time strategy games that really hits all three of the kinds of products that a real-time strategy game has to be. Namely, it has to be a single-player campaign, it has to be an online multiplayer game, and it has to be a viable, just sit down and have a fun skirmish game. And many RTSs get one or maybe even two of these right. I, I would be hard-pressed to come up with many that get all three of them right, but I feel that's certainly the case with Wargame Airland Battle. Now, Bruce, I believe you've been uh, playing this a favor with Tom as well. I'm curious to hear your impressions as well. Well, uh, first of all, I want to give you a little bit of historical background for why everything I think about this is correct. Um, so, <clears throat> interestingly enough that, you know, I think Tom made a joke at one point uh, about how terrible, how, how great uh, Oigen Systems is at uh, naming everything except for uh, their games. And uh, the idea of uh, war game airland battle, Tom thought, was uh, particularly uh, unimaginative or uninspired or cheesy or all three or, or not representative of what was actually happening. Well, to be uh, fair, though, Bruce, I mean, as I pointed out, they are French. They probably don't understand the English language very well. It's sort right. of like when the Japanese make a game, uh, they think, hey, I'm going to call it 
Donkey Kong. They just stick two words together. Mm. So probably mm. over there in France, they're like, you know what? It's a battle. It has land underneath it, and it has air above it. Let's call it that. So, you know, courtesy of France, it's not a real thing, of course, right? Mm, right, 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 right. That's, yeah, so, I, so that's, that's, uh, that's true, except for the part where it's not, because uh, <laughs> the um, uh, idea of air-land battle is actually uh, a doctrine that the uh, U.S. Army um, incorporated or... or, or uh, developed uh, in the early 80s, I think it was in 81 or 82, and it was based on this idea that uh, you had to see deep and uh, hit deep. And the uh, the idea was that the Soviets, that the whole the whole thing was developed as a response or sort of a, a way to deal with the Warsaw Pact forces in Central Europe, and the Warsaw Pact forces were felt to, uh, they were going to deploy in two echelons. And the idea of airland battle, it was sort of lessons that they had taken from the Vietnam War, because you can imagine that the Vietnam War uh, sort of um, shook some of the basic uh, understandings and, and um, conclusions that the uh, U.S. Army and Air Force had been playing with. Uh, since uh, since the 60s, which was that you know strategic air power was this really awesome thing and didn't need to really be coordinated with uh, with with the uh, tactical uh, the the idea of the, that the air force being used as a tactical weapon was kind of a waste. And of course, when uh, the U.S. Uh, basically stopped the Easter offensive with air power, uh, they kind of rethought everything. And the idea of airland battle was to try to apply this to the uh, Warsaw Pact assault on Central Europe, which was that if you saw deep and you could then hit deep, and you could hit the Soviet second echelon coming through. And, uh, you know, that's all fancy sort of military doctrine stuff. But it it is it's amazing how well the game takes these kind of actual concepts, and even though the game is not a simulation of modern warfare in the sense that, you know, you're, you're really just taking toys and playing with them, the military forces that are being described couldn't behave in this way, it does sort of uh, capture the essential features of airland battle, which is that uh, the game is really good at uh, differentiating between reconnaissance and uh, air power and defensive and offensive firepower. And uh, you really can uh, use the game's systems to sort of replicate this uh, um, this see deep and hit deep uh, style where if you can get uh, reconnaissance and, 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 and you can see things that your opponent can't or your opponent doesn't think he can be seen, uh, you can then use the new aircraft that have been incorporated into the game uh, to hit them and destroy them. So I think that uh, there are so many parts of this game that I love, and they happen to come together in this kind of unique way. You know, I, Bruce keeps talking about seeing deep and hitting deep and airland battle being a real thing. Uh, I suppose next you're going to tell me that European escalation, is that also a real thing? Yes, uh, the European escalation is how you get from uh, one floor to the next in uh, the <laughs> European Union. But also, see deep and hit deep when you say that, I, I just go straight to harpoon. I'm like, that. don't use that term with airland battle. You know, reserve that sort of thing for talking about submarine warfare and harpoon. Interestingly enough, there is a new, It's most of it is classified, but there's a, another doctrine that's being developed by the U.S. Navy called, wait for it, air-sea battle, which is specifically oh. being, yeah, see, it's specifically being developed uh, in, in um, preparation for a war in the Pacific against the Chinese, so uh, 
That's a preview just, of Oregon System's next game that I'm predicting is going to uh, happen. I'm much more comfortable blaming France for these goofy names than, than, our, than our troops. I, f- I feel like I'm doing a disservice to the military. Our um, troops are pretty are. bad at naming things, it must be admitted. <laughs> well, Rob, I want to know what your issues are. So Bruce and I are over here in the fanboy corner. What's your deal? What the heck? So I think actually a lot of my a lot of my problems just I think maybe centered around the campaign, uh, which I'd like to we can put off discussing that uh, for just a moment. Mm-hmm. But I guess my my overall there were there are a couple minor things that I just feel weren't as good here as they were in a European escalation, and it was kind of, it's kind of a recurring frustration. I think the the first uh, the first part of it is that um, I find the maps actually they look better and the terrain looks more uh, realistic in this game. But a weird side effect of that is I find the terrain actually fairly unreadable. Uh, you know, at a glance, it's it's very like this is a game where the positioning of your troops is hugely important, right? Like, if your guys are in a tree line versus not in a tree line, that could be life or death. That could be, you know, the difference between destroying an oncoming convoy or uh, just getting rolled. And this is a game that actually makes it very hard to sort of translate what I want to do uh, into what I'm what what I'm actually telling via the mouse. Uh, so that's something that I've just been running into with this game in general is is that I just find the the map a little bit uh, more obscure, better looking, but maybe a little harder to use. And when you've got a game that hinges on details like this, that's a frustration. Can I ask a couple of questions that I think are, are partly a failing of? the game not conveying important concepts. Like, uh, as far as how... I love the interface in this game, but I think there are some things that aren't documented that trip some people up. And I wonder if that might be what's going on with you finding the maps not readable. Um, for, For instance, Rob, do you know that the mouse cursor gives you feedback whenever you put it over a type of terrain? Like, it tells you if it's swamp, it tells you if it's a hedgerow... Uh, yes. It, of course, tells you if it's heavy cover. Um, and furthermore, if you want if you want to make sure a unit is in, say, a hedgerow, because there are a lot of areas where there's a little thin line of cover, and it may not be clear, like you might think, well, is my guy behind the hedgerow? Is he hidden in it? Anytime a unit is hidden, the texturing on it is replaced with kind of a white glowing effect. So there's visual feedback anytime something is, is deriving benefit from the terrain. Um, but th- I don't think that's really explained anywhere. You might think, oh, is it is it pulsing white like that because it's idle? Is that a corrupt, a corrupt texture bug? Um, but I feel there are tools in there that they don't do a good job of really explaining. No, I, I definitely noticed that stuff, but uh, but I found it to be... I, I just didn't find it as... Um, you know, that, that that stuff is all well and good, but the, the problem is that this is a game where once things start to happen, they start happening very quickly, and the battlefields are so large that, you know, in many cases I find them, you know, fighting two or three skirmishes all at once that are adding up to this whole battle, uh, which means that I really don't enjoy doing the old adventure game uh, you know, hunt the pixel, wait for the cursor to turn blue, and tell me that now I'm going to be deploying these guys to a hedge rather than a road. Uh, so little things like that, I, I think, are, are just are just minor irritants. Uh, you know, you know, with the whole experience. Um, and I guess I, I sort of um, w- with with this game, I, I I feel like 
it's it's gotten even harder uh, than it was in European Escalation, which is which is not an easy game to begin with. Um, we we talked a bit about this when we looked at European Escalation last year, right? The fact that the Cold War battlefield is this, just this enormously deadly and destructive place, um, and I feel like with Airland Battle, it sort of uh, passed this equilibrium. Where you know offense and defense, you know both sort of had good chances. With working with, with uh, Airland Battle, I definitely feel like um, it, it's just it's way too easy for battles to turn into sort of defensive stalemates, where whoever's going to move out is just going to get wrecked by anti-vehicle missiles, uh, hammered by artillery, and so you get these sort of um, really camper-style battles with these really cool armies that uh, just kind of uh, frustrated me to play through a bit. When you when you say camper-style battles, I think more of it as being a matter of cat and mouse. Like Bruce mentioned, the detection sub-game in this, there's no other RTS that does it the way that they do it. Uh, namely, you compare a unit's size and its, and its cover and whether or not it's moving, those three factors, with a spotting unit's optics value. And there's no simple matter of, hey, anytime a unit is within this radius circle, you will see it. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a seriously wargamey, fog-of-war concept going on here. So these camper battles, I agree, it can, it can turn out that way. But for me, it's much more about situational awareness. You know, it, it's about playing the recon game, knowing where the other guy is. And it's like uh, Bruce said, uh, what is it? See deep. Hit hard, deep strike what, deeper. I don't know. Something like that. It sounds like a porn movie. I'm still. I'm even more uncomfortable with that now. Uh, but but these these camper battles. I I think it, it it's got this harpoon quality of once you know where the other guy is, you're if he doesn't know where you are, you're you've already got a leg up. Like there's a serious recon sub game, a situational awareness sub game here that no other RTS does. Um, and if you look at it as an RTS about just, you know, lining up the units and having a cool battle, I, I think you're missing one of the unique selling points of, of Airland Battle. I'm not saying that's what you're doing, Rob, but uh, whereas I see any time it comes down to, okay, here's all of our armies and they're facing off against each other, who's going to blink first? I feel like one of the two armies is not taking full advantage of, of the, the gameplay mechanics. Uh, which is a lot about ambushing, about seeing what the composition is that the other guy has with his units, you know, playing the paper, rock, scissors without the other guy knowing that you're playing the paper, rock, scissors. Um, yeah, there's. I think there's a lot more to this game that, you know, that, that people sort of don't pick up. I think that, that you have to really... One of the things that people have complained about Airland Battle and, and, and European Escalation as well is that you need to really kind of know the units, uh, which, you know, I guess... It, I mean, that's a reasonable complaint... Uh, for people who don't want to do that, um, I think that, uh, you know, you can complain about any game if you don't like to do the certain things. I mean, if I don't like elves, then I'm not going to like a certain kind of game. But um, I think that if you know the units and if you sort of take the time to learn them, I mean, there's a lot going on um, that isn't exactly intuitive. You know, people just sort of, I find that people seem to buy tanks and just drive tanks around. Um, <laughs> the 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 game actually has a significant uh, interplay between uh, weapons uh, and their ranges. You often find that some of the uh, infantry weapons that are anti-tank weapons actually have longer ranges than the tanks themselves. Um, and I think that um, you can 
but you know, but then they're vulnerable to other things. And so, you know, if you just have these standoffs where you know somebody says, "I'm going to buy these tanks," and says, "Well, I'm going to buy these tanks," and I'm going to buy more of these tanks. And then, yeah, you can you can definitely pile units up behind each other, and, and then yeah, you're just having this sort of crush of units. But if you use the spotting game, and then you say, "Okay, well, if if I'm going to fight that battle here, if he's going to line up those tanks there, I should just." get out of where I am and move back to terrain where he can't see me, then he's going to have to expose himself or, uh, you know, just kind of bypass that region completely, f- use recon to find where his other right. units are and then, you know, uh, bomb those or, or attack them. So um, I I think that if you just play this play the game sort of like you play StarCraft where, you know, you just kind of lasso a bunch of units and then try to get more better units into that one place where the other person has his units, then, then yeah, but the game, I don't think the game is meant to be played that way. And to, and to support, too, I think part of the uh, one of Rob's concerns as far as how it's different from European Escalation, uh, I remember over the years, uh, Creative Assembly's Total War Games they they started out as these relatively staid slow games about breaking morale two armies would meet the little dudes would shuffle around and they would chop each other up and there'd be a few bodies on the field and generally one of the armies would break morale and run away and that was the gameplay dynamic but over successive iterations and you could argue this is modeling increasingly lethal warfare technology, or you could argue that Creative Assembly was catering more to action players. But over successive iterations, rather than being games about armies losing morale, it became games about just killing a bunch of the other dudes. So two armies would meet, and a bunch of them would die, and they would maybe speed it up and make it a little faster, a little less staid. And I do wonder, Rob, if something like that is going on. I haven't played European Escalation recently enough to really know, but I wonder if something like that is going on in the progression from European escalation to airland battles, because it really does feel fast to me. It does feel like things die more quickly, and I wonder, are they are they wanting people to have a faster, more action-y, adrenaline experience? Uh, is there some effort to model the lethality of weapons? Um, but one caution I would make about this game, for all of its detail and for all of its wargamey conceit, it's still a very fast-paced game. And it, it can be very daunting to have all these cool units and to kind of set them up in the tree lines. And, oh, seven seconds later, everything's dead and there's just a bunch of smoke and flame. And now I have no units. <laughs> uh, it's not, in a way, it's not an accessible game if you're a war gamer or if you're not into the typical RTS frantic pacing. And I believe that Mr. Bruce Garrett can speak to that by all the games he's lost to my superior reflexes oh. and multitasking oh, skills. Brutal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, I think that the game the game is very fast, and it does. It, it, it's um, because of the because of the ranges. You know, you'll see you'll have some units, and then your opponent will have some units, and all of a sudden, you know, you see these. Uh, these missiles coming at you, and then all of a sudden, you're, you're, your guys are dead. Um, I think that this, the game really rewards knowing what units can do what, and what they're good at, and what they're not good at. Um, I, I don't. I found European Escalation to be pretty fast in the first place, so I don't know that. I don't know how much faster I find this to be. Um, I think that the the fact that you put in fast moving aircraft uh, yeah. kind of causes you to. It forces you to have to react faster because you can the aircraft come in uh, if you don't have some kind of viable anti-aircraft defense, either in the form of you know ground-based or just you know other aircraft. I mean, the, 
the ground-based defense should should work uh, by itself. But you can call in your own aircraft to shoot down your opponent's aircraft. You have to do that so fast because they move so fast across the map. So I think that, yes, the game is forcing you to react a little faster. But I always felt European escalation, I had a very hard time dealing with uh, the speed in the first place. I mean, it's not a war. It's, you know, it says war game, but you know that's bias. Uh, it's definitely not a war game. <laughs> I'm sure that's from some U.S. Army doctrine phrase, though. Yes, the bias doctrine. <laughs> I, I think part of the 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 accelerate the the way the pace seems to have accelerated a little bit here uh, just is from the fact that by introducing air units to the battlefield, they sort of changed the way I view the entire battlefield. Uh, in a way, you know, from, from how I viewed it in European escalation. Uh, because suddenly I, f- I find myself spending a lot more of this game, uh, you know, at a wider zoom, uh, you know, taking in more of the battlefield, because now, you know, that entire thing, what takes your tanks, like, you know, 15 minutes to cross, uh, you know, a jet can fly over in, you know, 12 seconds. Right. Uh, and so, you, you sp- like, for me, I, I think the issue is, th- like, Certain things can happen much more quickly than they ever happened in uh in in European escalation, and that gives everything sort of an accelerated pace. Like you know, if you call down an airstrike and then you know interceptors appear, you know within seconds, and then air, anti-aircraft opens up, uh, suddenly just all hell breaks loose, and you really haven't even made contact with your ground units. It's just a it's just a sky battle at this point, and uh, I I think that has just created this sort of a psychological jump for me at least, uh, going from European escalation to uh, air land battle just in terms of okay now there really nowhere is safe uh now it's actually much harder to feel secure about any one particular point on the battlefield well i mean you should never feel secure about any point in the battlefield because the commies are coming to kill you um but you know speaking of that fact i mean you were you were saying that you had problems with the campaign i thought the campaign was one of the uh was one of the really neat additions that they made uh, to the game, um, because the campaign in um, European Escalation was was uh, certainly not as flexible or as as uh, I, I don't want to call it branching. It just you, you have you you suffer that you suffer the consequences of your failures, but you're not defeated by them, uh, which I think is a great way to have a campaign. Why don't you talk talk through the campaign actually? Because I, I think concept, the campaign concept is great. It's one of my favorite parts of this game. Uh, but let, let's talk a little bit about what it is. Well, I mean, so the campaign, uh, and I haven't played all of the campaigns, I've only played two of them, involves you ordering units, and, you know, there's like a sort of a province-by-province, you know, area movement kind of mechanic to it, and what you do is you you, um, give your units orders, there's a whole bunch of, you have a bunch of auxiliary um, units that can come into play or not. Um, but you you give your units orders, and um, based on where you move them, you can have a a, a combat with uh, with uh, the enemy. The interesting thing is that you fight the battles, and you may win or you may not. But the units that you destroy are units that are lost to the enemy forever. And same thing with your units. So you know you build up. You build up uh, experience in your units. You, uh, you know, when you lose them, you lose them, and uh, you also have there, there, there are events where you can, um, uh, you know, where you make decisions based on allocation of forces that can therefore that can later come back to to haunt you, or you can, uh, you know, you'll have um, uh, off map things that'll happen. You can either decide. 
yes, I want to uh, release some unit to go, uh, you know, to fight the Chinese, or I can, you know, keep that here, but then further events will make that, uh, you know, if you if you don't finish your campaign quickly, then other stuff is going to happen. Um, but the, the bottom line, I think the fact that the, there's persistent loss of units means that even if you don't win a scenario, uh, if you inflict enough if you inflict enough losses on the enemy, it is helpful to you. And in the same way, uh, if you win a scenario, but you get uh, you lose a significant number of experienced units, that's going to hurt you later on. So it really forces you. You don't just keep playing and replaying uh, things until you you know basically meet the objectives and go on to the next to the next um, piece. And and what what that persistence adds, and what that strategic shell adds, is. Uh, battles that play unlike any other RTS, whether a campaign or skirmish or whatever, uh, and I love that about it. So in addition to capturing political points on the map, like capitals, that's one of the ways you get your, your overall score up and your, each side is trying to hit a threshold. The main way you get your score up is you destroying enemy battle groups because that gives you basically a victory point dump. So what will happen is you will meet a battle group and you will fight a series of battles with it designed to either wear it down, to either force it to disengage, or maybe you're trying to pull a guy back to disengage, but you're playing the kinds of matches in the context of air wargame airland battle that you almost never play in a real-time strategy game. Just uh, Unless it's some scripted thing like, okay, the Zergs are going to appear at 30 seconds before the end of the clock, so turtle, and then build up defenses and see if they last. Like It's the kind of stuff, dynamically that developers for the longest time have been trying to script with these just dopey canned battles. Uh, and I love that about it. And, and a lot of times you will have to fight these battles with units, either nationalities or specific types of units, that you would normally never play with. You know, because each battle group comes as part of this scenario, and you can choose which ones you're going to bring onto the map, but you might play, you know, a West German mechanized group that, that you would never play in single-player skirmish or, or multiplayer skirmish. Um, you know, you might play with a really crappy, cheap group of Czech infantry because you can't afford anything else, and they've got to stay alive in Stockholm for three days. You know, so, so every time you sit down to play a 20-minute match, it's just to stay alive and keep as many guys as you can from getting killed. Uh, and I love the different kinds of battles that are created in this campaign. Yeah, that, I, I agree with everything Tom said. And you just, you, that's not something you can... If you were to script that, then you would just approach everything as like, oh, I'm going to do you know, this can battle this way because that's the next thing yep. that's on the menu. Whereas here... The situation that you get yourself into is the kind of battle that you're going to be playing next, which is uh, great for variety and, and really the only way that, that something like that can be pulled off. And, and some people, too, I can imagine, will be really turned off by, okay, now I've got to play, because all, all the battles, I think, are limited to 20 minutes. It's just a matter of a 20-minute uh, mm -hmm. tactical battle. Some people will be turned off by, okay, now I've got to play another 20-minute battle. I've only got a handful of infantry who are anti-tank. You know, Maybe I've got a few BRDMs. I stay alive for 20 minutes. I mean, to many people, that would be tedious, especially if the attacker only has a few infantry. You know, if you're both exhausted, because uh, battle groups are rated by a couple of different values, initiative and morale. So you can have two just completely depleted battle groups basically looking at each other across the map for 20 minutes, waiting for reinforcements to come in, which won't happen until next turn. But I love that kind of erratic pacing, you know, for, for every 
there, it's not a matter of let's just throw units at each other and make cool stuff happen. Sometimes there's going to be tedium, and I can completely see how that would turn people off. But as, as a guy who plays a lot of RTSs, I really respect that kind of uh, unique pacing. Yeah, and when you say uh, pacing, you mean you mean pacing in the campaign, right? Because I mean, just having that kind of pacing in a certain in a given battle. I mean, the the the, the reason that that is important is that it gives the it gives the campaign a unique pacing. Right. right, and because all the battles tie into the campaign, I mean, there's right. this great sense of interplay. Every battle is going to affect the campaign somehow, and vice versa. And boy, those you know. I think they got a lot of these ideas from Ruse, but Ruse had this idea of your, you would have these cards that you could play that would do tricky things with, with camouflage and strategic fake-outs and whatnot. Uh, all those cool ideas they played with in Ruse, they build into the campaign with some really cool theming. Uh, you know, for instance, all of the battle groups are rated by when and where they can arrive, and you can jigger that stuff, like as the Soviets, by using a submarine card, but then... You know, NATO can use a mine-laying card that'll trump any submarine card they try to play. Uh, and all the way up to, like, crazy stuff with nukes and airstrikes and commandos pinning units down. Um, I just love how they took that tricky element of ruse. They gave it this Scandinavian Cold War flavor, hmm. and, and they built the campaign out of it. Yeah, I mean, like, I mostly agree with everything you said, uh, because I really love a lot of the ideas in the campaign. And, I mean, I've had some... Uh, just outstanding battles. I fought one uh, the other day, where um, I, I basically had sent. I want to say they were uh, they they were French paratroopers uh, into uh, you know deep behind enemy lines, and so when you start when you start deploying those guys in an enemy held uh, territory, you don't actually have a reinforcement point because you're paratroopers. So you start yeah. actually somewhere in the middle of the map, and you have a lot of units you can deploy at the start. But until you capture a reinforcement point on the map edge, uh, you cannot reinforce your army. And so I thought, okay, I'm just going to, you know, make a beeline uh, to, you know, the, this this nearest um, the, the, this nearest reinforcement point. And unfortunately, the uh, Soviets just sort of staked out every hole in the desert, right? Like I just couldn't get anywhere uh, outside of my landing zone. And so, like after my best defensive units were pretty much uh, shot up trying to uh, break out of this encirclement. Uh, it turned into this just really bloody, like, yard-by-yard yard, uh, fight as I just tried to hang on, and you can still win if you simply inflict enough damage uh, on the enemy. And so it was coming down to about, like, 30 seconds left, and uh, I was within just, like, 100 points of uh, victory when one of my uh, scout cars spotted a... Um, spotted a Soviet command vehicle uh, moving along a road. And the Soviet command vehicle is like worth 125, 135 points. So it was the margin of victory right there. And the entire battle came down to this race between an um, anti-tank missile team with one remaining missile uh, racing them along a road in a, in a transport to a position where they'd be concealed, getting them out of the car, set up, waiting for the Soviet thing to appear. They get the shot off, the missile hits home uh, with like three seconds left. I win the battle uh and it was just like amazing it was just it was just an amazing uh you know uh you know wargaming experience uh it was just incredible at the buzzer uh you know wargaming is fantastic where i no i was gonna say so that sounds great so why do you hate the game so much um <laughs> i think because i'm bad at it uh no 
So the battles come down to, uh, basically they come down to one of two things. Either you completely annihilate your your adversary and drive them off the map and destroy all their units and their ability to reinforce, uh, you know, at that point you win the battle. Mm-hmm. Or you inflict enough uh, damage to, you, you, you destroy enough materiel mm-hmm. that you get the victory. Mm-hmm. What drives me crazy is that when two battle groups meet, um, if they're both at like relatively full strength, uh, each of them has a fairly reasonable and low number of points they have to hit in order to win the battle, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not entirely true. It's, that's based entirely on, I think, the morale value. Uh, yeah. So, so the parameters for any given battle, Rob, are, are hugely dynamic. You can have battles where I start with a bazillion units, but I, if I lose a few of them, you know, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna lose this battle. Like that's another thing, just the variety that it creates with the different kinds of battles. Like you, you won't what what you're describing definitely happens, but it won't always happen. Like it can be the other way around. The the interplay of morale and initiative, which determines your starting basically the points you have to spend to start, and the points that the other guy has to reach, their damage threshold to win the game, create these these crazily different scenarios. Um, but I'm sorry, I, I cut you off. You were describing one specific type of scenario, but I just wanted to point out it's not always like that. Yeah, I think it's a little more like that uh, than it is not, though. When you have two units that engage in repeated battles, say you have a series of inconclusive battles, right, between, uh, between two units fighting over a key location. Um, uh-huh. Those units will eventually both be so bludgeoned that they'll only be able to start with a couple units, and their requirements to get the victory are just going to be astronomical. Uh, it will require <laughs> basically like destroy four thousand points worth of enemy material. Uh, by the way, you're starting with five hundred. Good luck. Uh, and what what drove me a little bit crazy about that is that once these units get engaged and uh, right. end up in these in these fights, it it, it just it just seemed I I just got so tired of fighting these inconclusive stalemate uh, battles, right. Uh, right. trying to just kill a kind of a ridiculous uh, whack-a-mole number of enemies uh, in these battles, and it just it kind of it, it kind of soured a lot of the. Um, it, it soured me on the campaign a little bit because the the issue I guess I ran into was just um, if you didn't knock out the the enemy in that in that first punch in that first battle and they ended up going round and round, um, it just it just tended toward these really kind of awful stalemates uh, where neither of these units could ever land a killing blow and like mechanically <laughs> it was almost impossible. Uh, to See, do that. I, Rob, you're you're driving me crazy because now I want to agree with you when you say you suck at this game. <laughs> Because that's part of what's going on, I feel, is that you're not – you have to understand this dynamic, and it's not very well documented. So I don't necessarily mean this is a ding against yeah. you, but you have to understand the dynamic with the morale and the initiative. If you're just banging two battle groups into each other and waiting on one of them to die, that's kind of like playing chess without knowing how to set up a checkmate. Um, and I, I, realize, I, don't, I don't mean to sound glib, and I'm not trying to be a dick to you, but, but there are very definite dynamics that you want to set up. You want to engage a battle group. You want to wear it down without taking too many losses. And ideally, you want to bring in reinforcements to deliver the killing blow. Um, it's not a game where I like, like the Total War game, where I play one match on this little territory, and one of us wins and one of us loses, and then I get that territory and we're done. It's a game about bringing to bear different kinds of forces 
in a variety of different setups, you know, the parameters change, and, and jiggering those to where you eventually get the killing blow. It's not going to happen quickly. You know, a battle oftentimes, especially a battle that's going to net you a significant number of political points, is going to take many, many rounds, you know, over the course of days with the way that the, the turns work. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it, you're going to have to do, like I mentioned with the pacing, some of those battles are going to be these 20-minute sitzkriegs. And I, I can completely see how that would be tedious, but I feel that's an important part of this really cool, unique gameplay dynamic that they've set up that no other RTS does. So I, I guess I'm saying that everything you're saying is correct. A lot of times it can be very tedious and dull, and it can feel like, you know, two old men trying to land a killing blow, and they're both out of breath. Um, but I, it doesn't stop there. Like, there, there's more to it than that. Uh, and if you if that sort of thing is frustrating to you... I can understand the campaign might not be for you. Um, but one, one good thing, Rob, the campaign totally has multiplayer support. So I would, I would totally, and I'm not, I'm not doing an EPing thing here, but by golly, I would love to play you in the campaign, and I can show you how it's done. <laughs> that's trash talk. That's, that's the trash talk I've got there. I think what he's saying is that uh, if you had been uh, playing in real life, then we'd all be speaking Russian. <laughs> I, I like too. Like the the campaigns just have a very different priority. Like if you use those French paratroopers, and Lord knows, Rob, I, many of the early times I sat down to play the campaign, I basically just dropped the 101st Airborne into some meat grinder, and I was like, "Well, this game sucks. That's stupid. I just lost my best unit." Um, you know, the Russians have a completely different way to play with all these like cheap battle groups with cheap units. Um, I, I like this. I love this sense of asymmetry there that you don't necessarily get in skirmish games where they use the deck building to try to keep it fair. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, so I want to I don't want to invalidate what you're saying. I completely understand. But I do feel that there's a, another layer beneath that level of play. That's true. Although I would I have to say, though, I mean, the game is pretty stingy about letting you roll out new battle groups. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, the idea that, like, oh, you can you can sort of roll up and reinforce uh, doesn't really work in practice in a lot of these cases. Like, if Well, it does for the Russians. I mean, the Russians get a lot of battle groups. So the Russians have a much easier time, the Warsaw Pact, I'm sorry, has a much easier time bringing in fresh troops. Uh, they definitely play with this idea that NATO has fewer, more expensive, NATO has a much harder time absorbing losses. But with Russia, that's a great way to play is you just use one battle group to pin down an expensive American battle group and then you throw in a, f a few fresh uh cheap battle groups so i mean that's probably how it actually would have happened there you go but i guess that i guess the, the corollary to the point tom is making is that yeah if you play the game in a certain way then you're gonna get bogged down uh but i don't know that the game necessarily needs to reward every single uh you know th there shouldn't there's not necessarily a solution to the game in the way that you're playing it I guess I would put it that way. I, Bruce and I now sound like those kind of irritating nerds on the internet who are saying, uh, learn to play, noob. <laughs> I, or, I apologize, Rob. Or nub. <laughs> well, I mean, a, a little bit. I just I, I just think the I, I think you create some problems when you have in, like the victory conditions entirely dependent on destruction of materiel, 
and then the battles themselves really do kind of favor. They don't necessarily favor the defensive, uh, but the the sheer like the, the sheer destructive firepower that's available, just you know, kind of casually on the battlefield, infantry and its uh, you know and such, uh, makes it. I don't know. I just I find it really hard to in the, in those battles where where they set the where they set the stakes that high, where you've got to kill you know X number of units. Uh, everything about the game discourages you from playing aggressively enough to uh, to to rack up those kills because you will get t- you will get ripped to shreds uh, if you try to sprint across the map and land those killing blows. Um, I, like I like I don't know. I, I hear you talking about I hear you talking about uh, you know how how it should be working, and I just you know I've I've played the campaign. I've played a couple. I've played several uh, campaigns, and it's just it's not my experience. Once two units end up in that in that um, in, in locked in that sort of uh, death spiral, there is no escape from it uh, because you can't like if you're if you're NATO, you can't roll out uh, you know a new uh, a new battle group and just sort of well, right. have them. Uh, you know, tag in. Uh, so you end up with these really absurd situations where you have basically effectively annihilated a group, you know, five battles in a row, and yet you're still fighting the same absurd battle on no morale uh, with, you know, crappy little starting units. Uh, I don't know. That just that that just really rubs me the wrong way. It actually just it, it flies really in the face of uh, the game's identity as uh, a war game, I guess. Well, what what else would you do in a war though to win? I'm being a bit facetious, Rob, but, but the thing is, the alternative is to do something like Company of Heroes, and I love Company of Heroes, and they're, they're, they do this cool thing where you capture a victory point, and it ticks down the tickets, and you know, I think I think that originally came from like Battlefield 1942, those shooters. So they have a very they have this very conventional, you know, what grab this point like a King of the Hill thing, and 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 defend it. Um, those are much those are not scripted in. In basically all the games Ruse Eugen uh, has done, starting with Ruse, European Escalation, and now Airland Battles, is they don't do they. I think they've even patched in like a King of the Hill mode. But for the most part, their model of warfare is how many losses can you inflict on the other guy? You know, yeah. how much can you make the other poor dumb bastard die for his country? And and what this does, Rob, is I think it it ties into this really. This unique aspect of the Cold War where the Russians had more, and and this is a a generalization, but the Russians had more and cheaper units and the Americans, NATO, had fewer, more valuable units. And that's the basic asymmetry is that Russia can send, you know, they can kind of zerg in RTS language uh, and the U.S. and NATO has has a different priority. Um, So their gameplay model is based on this whole idea of how many losses can you inflict? And if you don't like that kind of gameplay model, you, you know, it's definitely not doing like what Company of Heroes does. It's this weird gamey scoring system that I think they're using to try to reflect the reality of, of, of Cold War conflict. Yeah, I mean, it, it never bothered me in, in European Escalation or uh, Ruse. It bothers me a bit here, mainly in the context of the campaign, simply because right. I think yeah, at times the campaigns are a little bit too... Um, I, I find it a little too easy to end up in just sort of a fail sta- fatal stalemate in the campaigns, uh, but I don't want to get sidetracked on that all night, uh, because as Wait, we Rob, discuss to, it... To, to demonstrate, I mean, to, to buttress your point, Eugen has said, we we realize people have an issue with the campaign, we're, we're revising it. I mean, they're making, they, they claim they're making major changes to the campaign, uh, you know, there, there's no timeline yet for when it'll be out, but they've acknowledged that we're not happy with how the campaign works, we feel it needs work, and we're doing that work. 
So I, I think they're hearing complaints from guys like you and, and definitely responding to it. Uh, well, I mean, I hope they don't change it too much. I think there's there's a lot of stuff I, I really adore in the campaign, uh, and it is, I mean, it, it there's a reason to play it, uh, which there isn't in a lot of other RTS games, and they're going to keep coming back to it. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I feel like we, we, we've... We we touched briefly on it uh, about the 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 arrival of, of the air units and it it just seems overall there's actually just more variety uh, in, in this game uh, in terms of orders of battle. I haven't counted units or anything, but it just seems like there's more stuff on the battlefield uh, than I'm used to seeing. But can we just talk briefly about how cool cluster bombs are? <laughs> <laughs> it depends on what you're dropping them on. <laughs> Everything. Uh, I, I mean, it's just the, this is this is a game where I mean, talking about the destruction of Cold War combat. Uh, this is a game where I mean, my God, if you get if you sight an armored convoy uh, full of like light armored vehicles and infantry moving down a road, and the AA cover is weak or something, I mean, my God, uh, can the, like can things turn fast in this game? Uh, and it's just it's spectacular to watch. Something I love even more than that, Rob, is when you see a guy bringing in some kind of ground pounders like that, and you quickly get out some sort of an interceptor and shoot it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just love all the trumps and counter trumps in this. And uh, my concern when they announced, hey, we're doing airplanes, was uh, they're just going to be like god powers. You know, you press a button and you deliver an airstrike. Uh, there was a game developed by a Swedish developer called Massive called World in Conflict. Um, and they did some cool stuff with like airstrikes and, but ultimately it was, you know, you press a button and you drop like a chemical strike here or here's carpet bombing there. Uh, so I was concerned that's what was going to happen with Airland Battle. And I love how they just put another layer of Trumps and counter Trumps and this super sexy Cold War hardware porn. Uh, they just put mm-hmm. that on top with airplanes instead of God power buttons. Yeah. Uh, I love and- that. And I think that the the sort of the way that they did the aircraft in the game sort of mirrors the sort of the fragility of air assets in the game in general. Because yeah. you know, in in European escalation, you know, you thought the helicopters were going to be these great things, and they're actually really fragile. And uh, you know, you think you're just going to put a whole bunch of Heinz up in the air and just wipe out an American armored column, and it they all get shot down, or you know, they're very they're very brittle. Um, and aircraft can be the same way. I mean, you can you fly. Um, uh, you fly a few MIGs into the um, you know wrong zone with some you know flak panzers, or you the the Shilkas you know can easily take down uh, you know a, a NATO aircraft. It's it's uh, uh, it's it's very much a, a case of uh, incorporating something into the game in a very consistent way. In the the elements have all the elements sort of fit consistently into one into yeah. one general theme. Uh, I, I think one of the best ways to experience, uh, you guys mentioned before this idea that a lot of people just show up and they are like, I'm going to bring tanks. Well, I'm going to bring more tanks. Well, I'll bring even more tanks. And people think, oh, it's a tank game. So when this game first came out, I, I probably haven't played it since, that much since I wrote the review, which is like maybe a month ago. But when the game first came out, uh, you could jump into, and you can still jump into, uh, these 10 versus 10 matches. And that's a new feature here. I think previously the game... Did it go to 5 versus 5? I forget. Uh, but unlike 
European escalation, you can now do these huge battles on this one enormous map called Ragnarok with 10 players on each side. Each player gets, you know, several thousand points. So you can just build one thing. You can just be the tank guy or you can try to build a little balanced force, but that's kind of foolish. You can just be you can be just the artillery guy. So you get plenty of people who are jumping into this who are like, I'm going to build an air force. I'm going to bring in A-10s because everybody loves those A-10s, by the way. Uh, So what you would do is you would join the Warsaw Pact side, you would just spend all your money on shilkas, and you would just keep them in trees behind the front line, and you would basically just chew up A-10s, just chew up all these expensive American planes as people were sort of figuring out the balance. Um, Mm -hmm. But whereas airplanes are really cool uh, options to attack, they're also an awesome opportunity for the other side. Uh, you know, you get people making airplanes just feeding the other team points. Right. And nowhere is it more evidence than it, evident than in these big, crazy 10v10 battles. Uh, well, I ended up in the habit of uh, when I called down an airstrike, I would watch it happen with my finger hovering over the evac button. V. That V key, yes. <laughs> and right. you just get in the habit of realizing, like, when you see the missile the, the missile streaks uh, appear in the trees, you're just like, nope, nope, we are not doing this. Just yeah. leave. Just go home. It's usually too late by then, unfortunately. <laughs> it, it depends on the aircraft. Yeah. But, and well, the, that's another. Yeah, the, go ahead. Sorry, Bruce. I was going to say that the, it depends on the aircraft. Is another great thing about the game is that the, you know each aircraft has a very sort of you know you have the um, you know the ground attack aircraft, the interceptors. You have, and you have inter, you have aircraft over a, uh, you know a wide sort of time scale. So you know you've got F one hundred four starfighters, and you have uh, you know MiG twenty threes and uh, yeah. the A ten. Um, so you, you get in these really interesting. Uh, you really interesting um, battles between uh, aircraft with very different capabilities, and you kind of have to know what does what. Uh, but uh, I really enjoy that. Uh, one of the uh, one of the things with the the aircraft, actually with all the units, is that some people have said, you know, there's too many units. I have to know all of them. You know, how can I look at all these screens and figure out and parse all this information? And they've gotten a little better with it because there's tool tips now for everything. Uh, for the most part, it's kind of easy to figure out. Um, but, but I kind of feel that one of the, the things where this game gets an unfair rap is this idea that you have to learn 250 different units to play. Right. When really, for the most part, they're, they're unit categories. You know, there are tanks, there are, uh, there are vehicles with ATGMs, there are strike aircraft, there's the anti-tank infantry or the anti-infantry infantry. There are categories, and each nationality has some variation in terms of what it has at its fingertips. But I always felt that if you just restricted yourself to one nationality, you know what, just try playing the Russians, or just, you know what, try the Brits or whatever, and just sort of learn the general unit types... You don't really have to fuss with things like the difference in range between a T-72 and a Challenger tank. You know, as long as you are understanding that your most expensive tank is going to be your best one, and your cheapest tank is going to be your worst one, but it's the easiest loss to absorb, as long as you understand those basic categories and unit types, I, I don't feel like you need to obsess over numbers. I don't feel you need to worry about the fact that there's 250 different units in this game and they all have unique stats. Mm-hmm. You know, just play the Brits. You've got your good expensive tanks. You've got your recon units. You've got your strike craft. You've got your recon helicopter. Uh, so I feel that this vast amount of hardware in the game, which is a great selling point, uh, unnecessarily scares some people. 
Well, I mean, you do have to kind of know what the things that are opposing you can do so that, I mean, if yeah, sure, you know, you can just decide that, you know, I'm just going to play Canadians and I'm going to know all the Canadian units. But, right. uh, you know, if somebody comes at you with, you know, some weird, you know, Czech anti-air. Uh, or what's a conquers. Yeah, you have to, you have to, you have to know what, uh, you know, what the, what the things that you're facing do. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that there's, um, people who play this game there it's first of all it's a great game to kind of zoom in and 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 watch i mean it's it's uh, uh very satisfying that way but i think the people that want to play this game and want to see you know a t55 uh are people who inherently are interested in, in kind of digging into the the minutia of a game like this so i, I mean yeah. that part doesn't really bother me I mean, it, 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 I don't know if it should bother anybody except for Oregon Systems if that's gonna if that's gonna dissuade people from playing. <laughs> uh, one tip I would offer though is that whatever you do, for Pete's sake, turn on the NATO symbology because they've got these little goofy icons. But mm-hmm. I think once you turn on something that is more visually distinct, which is the NATO symbology, it makes clear when you see an enemy unit. Oh, that's got ATGMs on it. Or oh, that's just a recon unit. I don't need to fuss right. with it. Or right. oh, that's right. just a that's just a troop carrier. Uh, and it's m- much easier to quickly recognize that if you learn the NATO symbology. That's uh, true. And then you can also and and remember that you can also control that stuff from those little unit boxes that are over the. Yes. Units. You don't have to actually you know hover over. You have to to select the little dots. Right. Right. Uh, have you guys fiddled much with now as a guy who loves deck building games and Bruce I know you're a big fan of the cards mm. um, they have this whole deck building system uh, have you guys banged on that very much because I feel it adds a lot to the skirmish game so I haven't but I did a lot of it with Wargame European Escalation has it changed much uh, since European Escalation oh it, it, they did not have any deck building in European Escalation deck, I mean they called it that but it was basically hey here's a box whatever units you want throw them in the box yeah. now go play now what they do now is you are limited to a certain number of slots for each category of unit uh, you are furthermore uh limited by their experience level. Uh, You have a certain number of points you can use. And what you can do is there are three criteria. There's nationality. There's uh, like unit composition, like a mechanized brigade or an airstrike group or a tank group or whatever. And then there's a time period. And any one of these three things, you can limit the units available to put in your quote-unquote deck. And if you do that, you get a benefit. So if I just play with all the units or whatever, I've got maybe, I don't know, 30 points I can spend to slot stuff, and I just throw everything in there, and I've got some crazy melange of, of Soviet tanks and Czech tanks and, uh, you know, and some Polish infantry, and I just go to town. But if I limit myself to only Polish uh, – actually, are there Polish units in there? Like, so say only yeah, Soviet are. units in there. Okay. Uh, only Polish units, then they'll all be – I think it's more experienced. If I limit myself to only a particular type of unit, I can bring in more of that type of unit. And furthermore, if I limit myself to Polish units before 1970, I get an additional benefit to help me. So what that encourages you is, again, using these these crappy, cheap, specific units that you might have never used in European escalation and building a deck around them. Uh, and I, I just love that kind of that incentive to create themed decks and to care about specific hardware that you might not otherwise play with. For instance, if I'm playing the Poles, I'm not going to have that many airplanes, 
So whatever the Poles have as their ground strike aircraft, that will suddenly matter to me. And I, I will know, oh, this is what the Polish Air Force consisted of. You know, I will learn about and appreciate this specific piece of hardware that would have completely been, uh, you know, under my radar, so to speak. Hang on, there's actually uh, something I wanted to ask Bruce, because he's usually repping pretty hard for the Poles. Uh-huh. Um so, am I crazy, or are the poles just kind of screwed in this game? They, their, their, their gear seems really, really cannon foddery and weak compared to pretty much anyone else in the Warsaw Pact. Yeah, Bruce, what do you have to say about that? <laughs> well, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, the the poles got a lot of. Uh, I mean, the, the the weakest. I think the weakest. Uh, y- the weakest armies in the Warsaw Pact were the ones that that were considered the least reliable. So I think the Poles were considered pretty unreliable because at any point they might turn around and, and drive east rather than west. I mean, there was a whole uh, question about whether, you know, if there were a, if there were a war where the, you know, if, if NATO were invaded, whether, uh, you know, the Polish army would would um, would actually obey orders. Now, they, they did invade Czechoslovakia pretty hard. So, um, you know, Bruce, I thought you were making a, a crass, tasteless joke about the Poles not being able to figure out direction. No, that would be the president of Ohio State University. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I think that um, so I mean the East Germans got most of the I mean just from a historical standpoint the East Germans got most of the good or, or the best Warsaw Pact weapons because the East Germans were a pretty reliable and b uh, were sort of on the front line uh, the Czechs were also on the front line to some extent uh, because uh, you know they 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 did share a border with they share, did share a NATO border. Um, the uh, Hungarians, uh, I don't think the uh, Soviets ever forgave them for 1956. They had kind of crappy uh, uh, hardware. The Poles, for the same reason, the Pol- Polish Air Force in particular, until they got the MiG-21, uh, was pretty outdated. I mean, the strike aircraft Tom's talking about was probably the Su-7, and that's a pretty, that is a cannon fodder aircraft. Then who do you have left? You've got uh, Romanians weren't really Warsaw Pact, and they stopped uh, getting modern Soviet hardware a long time ago, and neither were the Yugoslavs. So, um, so yeah, I would say of all the countries in the Warsaw Pact, the Wars- the Poles probably uh, didn't have very good equipment. Uh, fortunately, they didn't need it. But that is balanced out, though, in that their equipment is cheaper, and if you focus your deck on only Polish units, you right. are going to get some sort of a commensurate advantage. Right. Uh, You'll get an army of Garrix. The, they don't have very good anti-air stuff in the game either. Um, but yeah, there's I mean, definitely some, some sort of asymmetry like that. Like you can say, oh, if I'm Poland, I'm, I'm more vulnerable to, right. you know, I don't have land-based AA. Uh, and that's kind of the asymmetry they do with the factions, I think. But I think it's great. I mean, it gives you kind of a sorry, – sorry, Rob, I just want to make the point that it, it related to this, that this this gives you sort of almost like a, a Warhammer-y type feel in that you uh, – you know, one of the, and, and when I say Warhammer, I mean like Warhammer miniatures because one of the things that people uh, in, who play with that kind of miniatures uh, like to do is create units. You know, this is going to be a, uh, you know, ultramarine something, uh, you know, unit, and they try to – um, you know, it has a certain number of points and, uh, uh, you know, having everything be consistent and, uh, um, sort of within the Warhammer universe is not only, you know, sort of advantageous in game terms, but it's also sort of satisfying to the person that's making the, making the, um, the unit and painting the miniatures and, and, and the aesthetic effect is great. And I feel that, uh, 
Airland Battle does a good job of of recreating that kind of feeling where uh, you know you feel like you you know you build a deck around a historical unit from a certain nationality uh, yeah. of a certain military type and it and it just it gives you the the kind of satisfaction that um, that uh, you don't get from just slapping a bunch of cards together. And Lord, that's certainly how I jumped in. It's like you know what I I was one of those guys who's like I'm going to make all A tens and it's going to be awesome. So I <laughs> the first thing I did with this game, I'm making an A ten deck and then I'm going to take it in multiplayer and I'm going to totally pwn people with my A tens and then they get shot gun, down yeah. and you realize oh that that wasn't a good idea. Right. <laughs> so you go back to the drawing board and you revise your deck and there's right. this sense of. Oh, okay, well, my deck needs some way to fend off tanks uh, who might be accompanied by AA. Or, oh, my deck needs something to deal with infantry in cities. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's this great iterative process of, here's the toy I want to play with. Oh, but wait, it needs some help. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what do I do with my deck? Right, yeah. and and I think just um, you know what you were talking about a moment ago, Bruce, about you know how the the Polish uh, you know equipment in this game is is uh, sort of reflects a real world uh, you know political situation between uh, the 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 the, uh, the masters in Moscow and uh, the Poles. Uh, it's it's actually really cool to go through these these uh, tables of equipment and sort of see like it, it, little story unfolds, right? Like you've got the you know you've got this rather singular French force uh, that's rather kind of uh, it feels all very jack of all tradesy. Uh, you know everything's based on this uh, AMX uh, chassis. Uh, mm-hmm. Every armored vehicle's just basically got a different module slapped on top of it. They're mm-hmm. they're they're really flexible, but they're also they're not really the best at anything. Uh, you get the Americans who've just thrown a crap load of money at the problem of winning war, but it makes their forces kind of uh, really delicate uh, if they get caught out. It, it, it just becomes really interesting to sort of play with all these... Uh, to, you know, to that uh, Warhammery point, it becomes really interesting to sort of, uh, you know, to play these factions. You really kind of have to both understand, uh, you come to understand the identity that faction has, and then try to figure out how to succeed within those limitations. And another great thing I would say I really adore about the campaign, uh, you know, because I don't all, I actually, there's a lot I love there. Uh, another thing I really adore about the campaign is the fact that you see these uh, pre-made decks built to reflect different units. And so a Marine Amphibious Brigade uh, is going to have a rather singular composition that, yes, both supports the fact that, hey, these are Marines, they storm ashore, they operate from ships, they've got, uh, you know, Harrier support and light tanks, but they don't have a lot of the latest army stuff, um, versus you know, a, a you know, German German Panzer Brigade. It, it, what's really cool is when you play around with these in the campaign. Uh, at first, you may not know what the hell to do with these guys uh, because you look for your, you know, you go to look for the tanks, and oh god, you don't have any, or you have like four. <laughs> you have four light tanks right. with missiles, uh, and you've got to figure out. Okay, so if if these guys aren't going to play like the standard combined arms, uh, you know, mechanized infantry brigade, uh, then what the hell are they good at? And then you have to figure out, okay, well, here's how here's how you play this game if you don't have if you don't have heavy armor. Here's how you play this game if you don't have right. much air support. Mm-hmm. And I think it's 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 a really it's another really cool uh, thing the campaign does is to sort of give you an idea of what deck building looks like and how you can succeed with uh, really what seem like imbalanced forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's there's a lot to like here. Um, I, I want to real, real quick, quick yeah. tie into what you're talking about, Rob. One of the things that uh, so many real-time strategy game campaigns try to do, and I feel they fail egregiously and embarrassingly they fail, is tell stories. 
uh, and as someone who craves good narrative in video games and who really appreciates that what video games do best is this emergent player-driven narrative. You know, the story I, I get going in a game of Civilization is going to be infinitely better than the story Company of Heroes tries to tell me when I play the campaign. Uh, the narrative you get from the campaign with something like, you know, let's say you're going to bring in a Polish battle group to try to come up through Denmark or whatever, the narrative you get from that is, to me, a huge draw. You know, how is this battle group going to do over successive battles? Which units are going to survive and become veterans? Which ones are going to die? Uh, and furthermore, it's reinforced by the fact that every unit in the, the game has a name. You know, it's either the name of a commander of a group of infantry, or the name of a pilot, or the name of a tank driver. So, for, for me... The, the single-player campaign, after you let it run for a few turns, it becomes just every bit as rich as something like that goofy Tom Clancy Red Storm Rising thing, where he's, he's, he's telling a story about all these like pilots and soldiers. <laughs> and, uh, and it's my own Red Storm Rising story right there. That's exactly uh, how it feels. Yeah, yeah. And I, I just love that Eugen knows, okay, we're not going to do... You know, Company of Heroes 2 came out, and they did this like elaborate cutscene with a character being interrogated about what he did during the in the Eastern Front, and there's even like this action man, hero character dude, and it's just embarrassingly bad compared to, you know what, just give me the pieces and let the story happen based on how I play. Uh, and I just feel that that's one of the strengths of this campaign, is it really creates narrative in a way that so many real-time strategy games fail to do. You know, in terms of closing thoughts, I think I'm, I'm clearly the most lukewarm on this, but I, I, even I really like it, and my problems with it uh, may be entirely due to the fact that I am basically the... Um, uh, the Field Marshal Yodel of, uh, nah. of Wargame European Escalation. Uh, I, I really I really don't belong on that battlefield. Uh, but be that as it may. Um, uh, you know, I, I have some problems with the game, uh, but I'm still, I'm working through them, and there's there's a lot that I really adore about this game. And I do feel like each one of uh, one, Yugen's games uh, sort of supplants the last one, right? Like, after uh, European Escalation came out, I was kind of done with Ruse. After the, with this, now that this is out, I think European Escalation is going on the shelf. Uh, each one, is, you know, represents uh, some some really interesting progress. I think each one gets also a little more specifically tailored. Uh, I think it might be a little harder for uh, you know these games to find much of a wide audience. But as you pointed out, Bruce, it's it's clearly sort of built for people who just love this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm glad that people are making stuff for people who love this kind of stuff because I'm one of those people. And uh, it really does just get at the uh, realities of the, uh, you know, uh, go deep, go hard uh, military doctrine. This is how it would have been if we had gone deep and hard and fast. So I just want to point out that uh, Bruce's going deep and hard doesn't get him very far. Bruce, have you, have, when we played, have you ever won a match against uh, me? If you, uh, <laughs> if you account for the historical handicapping, I probably did. <laughs> I love how Tom keeps being like, I know not to make this an Epine thing, but to be clear, <laughs> I've seen my Epine. Yeah, <laughs> to be Rob, clear, Rob, I will take it where I can get it. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, we should do that uh, multiplayer campaign, and uh, you can give it to me. Uh, all right. Oh, so that does it for tonight's show. Um, 
my thanks as always to Michael Hermes for uh, putting this episode together, especially since we're getting it to him fairly late in the week. Uh, and my thanks to both of you uh, for sort of burning the midnight oil as we uh, talk about uh, Soviet and U.S. military doctrine late into the night. Perfect. Uh, go Czechoslovakia. <laughs> Check go, you friends. feisty little poles. <laughs> I love it. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>